I know that after these moments, we are about to spread out and go so many different places into so many different activities. And I just want us to have a moment of focus and clarity in the presence of God right now. Every time I get to preach on Christmas or Easter, there is an elevated, not necessarily pressure, but I think weight to the moment because I know a lot of people are in the room who aren't normally in the room and we're celebrating these holidays that magnify these huge spiritual realities. I just want you to know for ACC, our heart's desire is not just that you would walk away tonight feeling good about the Christmas service you decided to attend. I'm honored that you would be here. It means a lot. But at the end of the day, I don't really care if you leave here going, that was awesome or that was awkward. My main priority in preaching the word of God and our main priority as a team in putting these moments together is that you would leave here knowing you had an encounter with Jesus. Because the last thing I want you to do is enjoy a nice holiday that can really start magnifying a lot of other things other than Jesus and miss out on the reason why we have breath in our lungs in this moment, which is to join in with the song of heaven saying, oh, come, let us adore Jesus. So we got a lot of different life seasons in this room. We got a lot of different stories and family backgrounds and a lot that we're carrying at the end of a difficult year for many of us. For others of us, it was an awesome year. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn simultaneously. But all I really want in this moment is for us to tune in on what the Holy Spirit of God is doing. And we're going to do that by getting laser focused on Jesus and looking to his word. If you need a title for this sermon, it is called The Cross of Christmas. The Cross of Christmas. Now that is actually the title of the song that we were just singing. If that song, Thank You for the Manger, Where My Savior Laid, if that was resonating with you and you're like, I've never heard this, but this is so amazing. It's because our worship pastor, Matt Cole, wrote it a couple weeks ago. And I can't stop singing it. I can't stop thinking about it. It's my favorite Christmas song of all time, which is a big deal because it's overtaken All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey. Dead serious. In fact, there's some married couples in the room who need this. Can you look at the person next to you and just say, all I want for Christmas is you. I just want to give you that moment as, as an opportunity to escape from the stress and the tension that could have possibly been this past week. All I want, yeah, I see you, babe, front row. But here's why I love it. Look up here. Here's why I love it. Now, now we didn't know that he was going to write that song, so a lot of people have been like, Kim, I need to get that on my phone. We need to get that downloaded. We'll be releasing it next year around Christmas time. But the thing I love about that song, The Cross of Christmas, is the heartbeat is that we would see on Christmas the full story. And when we say the cross, we're not just talking about the instrument of death that existed in the Roman Empire where our Savior died. We're talking about the full picture of the story. What do you mean? I mean... Thank you for the manger where my Savior laid. Thank you for the blood-stained cross where my debt was paid. Thank you for the empty tomb where stone is rolled away. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross and Christmas Day. Here's the thing. When you think about the cross, I don't want you to just think of the symbol for the death of Jesus. I want you to think of the full story. And the reason why we have to do that tonight is because, let's just be honest, it's a lot easier to tune in to spiritual realities on Easter than it is on Christmas. Like, it's really easy on Good Friday to go, we know what this day is about. It's about Jesus dying in our place, his blood shed so that we can be forgiven, standing as an atoning sacrifice before God on our behalf. And you're like, I'm focused on Jesus. Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday comes, and it's like, 
the tomb is empty. I have hope for eternal life because Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead and he is going to raise me up one day. Oh my goodness, it's like Easter. I can be laser focused on the things of God. But Christmas, his birth can kind of be washed out by how loud everything else is. And I'm not saying I don't like it. I love the songs. I love the decorations. I love the gifts. I love Santa. I love every little detail of this holiday. And I, I, but I just think if we're just thinking about a therapeutic moment by the fire, or maybe not by the fire, because apparently we live in the tropical area of Auburn, Alabama. It's going to be burning hot tomorrow. You can lay out if you want to on Christmas Day. If you're joining us through a screen, so hot in Auburn this weekend. And, uh, and, and that's amazing for you. But I know on Christmas so many times I can let the birth of Jesus get sort of washed out by all the noise and all the other things that are going on. But I love the focus to go, no, 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 this is one story. And not just manger to cross to empty tomb. But faithful God, who creates humanity in his own image, chooses a nation that's going to represent him to the world, is faithful to that nation over generation after generation after generation, reveals himself in new ways all throughout the Old Testament, and his people that are supposed to be called by his name end up calling on a lot of other names and choosing slavery apart from God. This is the thing. When you choose that you want freedom outside of the authority of God, you don't find freedom. You find more slavery. And that's what you read over and over and over again in the Old Testament to the degree that God has to promise his people that there's a Messiah, there's a Redeemer coming, and he's not just going to make the pain of life going away, go away. He's going to open up salvation for all people groups. And this is a God who doesn't just claim it's going to happen, he makes it happen. The incarnation is Jesus sent down from heaven, not just as a beautiful, innocent baby boy, but as a general who has come to invade the kingdom of darkness. This is a move by heaven to make sure every single one of us knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that we don't have to be trapped by sin and darkness and death any longer. He lives a perfect life. He dies a sinner's death. He rises from the dead. And then after that, he ascends to the right hand of God, doesn't leave us alone, leaves us the power of the Holy Spirit that is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come so that you can walk in this life with the full assurance of hope that comes from knowing Jesus has bridged the gap between you and God. You are going to heaven forever. And until then, you get to live on purpose. And so I just want to make sure tonight that we don't just not miss the meaning of Christmas. I want to make sure that you don't miss the meaning of your life. This isn't about knowing what a holiday is all about. This is about the greatest tragedy in this room, which is that some of you have breath in your lungs and could live your entire life without discovering the reason why it was given to you. This is about the reason why we exist, and it's about a church with laser focus on Jesus going, I don't want to miss the point. So this is the final sermon of 2021, and we began 2021 talking about a gospel worldview. I want to preach the gospel once again, and I want to see it in light of the Christmas story, and I just believe that wherever the word of God is preached and the people of God are available, miracles can happen. The Holy Spirit illuminates Christ, and we walk away transformed. Did you bring your Bible on Christmas Eve? If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. Hold it up high. Hold it up. Welcome, first timers. <laughs> you just gave yourself away. Okay, keep your Bible up. If you engaged us this last week, I'm curious tonight. Keep your Bible up if you still have to either buy a gift or wrap a gift. Keep it up. Oh, it's painful. Turn with me to Luke chapter two. Procrastinators unite. So Gage sent me some data on 
procrastination in that it's actually, this has nothing to do with the sermon, it's actually not that bad if you learn how to manage it correctly. That being a procrastinator is now, now, some, now if you still have shopping to do tonight, you have a problem and you need to focus and lock in. But I'm talking about the fact that if you can't find yourself focusing like me until something is really, really urgent, that's actually a part of your personality. You just need to learn how to manage that in a way that maximizes your energy levels at the right time. This is not a leadership development message or a self-help message, but I just turned it into one. I just wanna tell you procrastinators, there is a way out if you learn how to manage it. Because for me, it takes until Saturday to really go, okay, God, really, is that what you want me to say tomorrow? And there's hope for you if you're a procrastinator. Let's talk about Luke. Luke chapter two, this is a Christmas story that you read growing up. If you grew up in a Christian home, you, you, you might've read this by the fire, but I I want you to recognize that Luke is actually a physician and a historian. If you read the beginning of Luke and the beginning of the book of Acts, he's writing to a guy named Theophilus and he says, here's what I want to do. I want to put together an orderly account of the events that have transpired. See, Jesus was rocking everybody's world 2,000 years ago, and they didn't know how to put the pieces together of this God of covenant, the God of Abraham in the Old Testament. And now this New Testament story, it seems like God is up to something new, but in reality, Jesus was the culmination of everything that had led up to that point. So when you read the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, here's what you're reading. You're reading Luke trying to clarify the continued redemptive story of God from cover to cover in the scriptures. And so in Luke chapter two, you're gonna read an orderly account of the birth of Jesus. And let's be reminded that this is history. This is Christmas. Luke chapter two, verse one. If you're there, say I'm there. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find him you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had, they had, what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. 
This is the word of God. So there's no way in the remaining time that we have that I can hit on every detail of the Christmas story that we just read. And it's tempting to because it's a beautiful story. But what you have in this presentation of the birth of Jesus is you actually have a story within a story. Yes, it's a story about Mary and Joseph and a virgin birth and traveling to Bethlehem and having no room to stay in and have the baby, but then miraculously God comes through and they're provided for and and the baby is wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger and the shepherds get involved. But what you actually have is a gospel proclamation pitted against a gospel proclamation. Here's what I mean. The word gospel 2,000 years ago was not a churchy word. It was not a spiritual word. It was just a word in Greek that means euangelion, which means out loud declaring good news, particularly good news about the reign of a king. So go back to verse one, and I want you to remember that Luke is a historian. This is not an accident that he includes this detail. Luke chapter two, verse one, it says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Scriptures tell us that Jesus was born when the fullness of time had come, at just the right time. It's not an accident that Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Now, I love history, particularly Roman history. And so I read that name, and I'm going, I know exactly who that is. Caesar Augustus was a guy who used to be named Octavian. All the people who don't like history, you can tune me out right now, but everyone who does, tune in, because this is good. Octavian was the adopted son of Rome's most powerful emperor of all time, Julius Caesar. If you read that story, you know Julius Caesar is assassinated at the height of his power by a bunch of men who are all competing for his place. Two of those men rise up to the most prominence. One of them is Octavian, and one is Mark Antony. Octavian defeats Mark Antony. He runs away to Egypt with Cleopatra. You know that story. And Octavian changes his name to Caesar Augustus. But here's what he wanted to do. He wanted to spread the power of the Roman Empire, not just by military rule. He wanted to also spread it through propaganda. So what he would do is he would say, wherever I go, wherever my chariot travels, put a herald in front to euangelion, preach the gospel good news of my reign. And here's what I want said about me. Say, here comes the son of God. Because Caesar Augustus was adopted by Julius Caesar, when Julius Caesar died, he was thought of in Rome as the God of gods. So Augustus was capitalizing on that position and going, hey, let it be known, wherever I go, here comes the Son of God, and put this tagline as part of my campaign for world domination. Here it is. Here comes the Son of God. This is what was said in Rome 2,000 years ago. You can look it up. The one who will bring peace to the whole earth. Peace on earth was not something that began with it being declared over Jesus. It was something that was used as political propaganda for Caesar Augustus to spread his reign. Son of God, peace on earth. Caesar Augustus issues a decree that the entire Roman world has to go to their town to register. Guess who that includes? The people of Israel who are enslaved because of their sins. They have been for generations. And this teenage couple, Joseph and Mary. Mary's obviously close to giving birth, and this is a far journey from where they lived in the northern part of, the Israel, of Israel all the way down to, to Judea and even south of Jerusalem to Bethlehem. My wife right now is seven months pregnant. I cannot imagine a journey that far on whatever they were riding back then, donkeys or camels. I mean, this is, too many times we romanticize the Christmas story. This is stressful. This was a lot, and it's not an accident that just at the height of the kingdom of man, 
the kingdom of God invades in the absolute opposite direction. Not competing for honor, but striving for humility. And when Jesus is born, he has heralds preaching the gospel. But his heralds are not paid soldiers. They're angels and heavenly hosts. And what do they have to say? Let's look, verse 10. But the angel said to them, this is to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. I bring you good news of great joy. Listen, if you grew up in a church tradition where the message of Jesus caused fear and did not cause good news and great joy to come, you need to rehear what Jesus did on your behalf. The first word is, do not be afraid. Why? Because there's good news from heaven that will cause great joy. What's the good news? A savior has been born to you. He's the Lord, the Messiah. Now, 2,000 years ago, they thought the Lord and the Messiah was gonna come deliver them from Roman oppression. But calling Jesus a savior does not mean that he's going to come save the people from the oppression that they lived in. It literally means that he's gonna save the people from their sins. So Jesus doesn't come to eliminate Caesar Augustus. He comes to eliminate Satan and all his friends and take away any charge of condemnation against the people of God. So... Good news, great joy. There's a savior born. Here's, the, here's what everyone's freaking out about in this room who understands the power of Christmas. We're freaking out about the fact that there was no way to be made right with a holy God. We were created to reflect his glory perfectly. And when Adam and Eve sinned, we all sinned by nature. We are born into death. We're born into sickness. We are born into hatred. Nobody teaches human beings to do those things. We just are that way. And our bodies are expiring. But here's the thing. Because God came down to become one of us, God made a way where there is no way. And Jesus took our place. And the good news of a savior, the gospel message is this. Jesus did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He went to the cross and took God's wrath. You get to go to heaven and take Jesus's place and be united to him forever as a child of God. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And some of you need to be reminded how amazing it is that the angels are calling this out. The incarnation is so powerful. And, and they don't just announce it to the shepherds. Apparently, once this announcement is made, a song breaks out. And not just the angels, a bunch of heavenly hosts. We don't even know what these beings looked like. Go to verse 13. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. What a song. And there it is, the cross of Christmas. You may have heard that title earlier and been like, I don't see a cross, I see a manger, the cross is later. No, 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 the cross has two beams. And there it is from the angels. The birth of Jesus means two things, foundationally. Glory to God and peace on earth. And the vertical beam of the glory of God and the horizontal beam of peace on earth to the, those whom his favor rests is the cross of Christmas that I don't want you or me to miss out on tonight. At the beginning of 2021, I told y'all we need to have a gospel worldview Here's what it means to have a gospel worldview. Here's what it means to look at the world and see Jesus. It means that your entire life runs through the filter of being about the glory of God and being the result of the peace God has made with you because of the blood of Jesus and a favor that you get to carry for the rest of your life because you are loved by God. 
Here's what I love about the cross of Christmas. Glory to God, peace on earth. I love it because it runs contrary to the two most common lies I'm tempted to believe. Those lies are that life is about me and that I need to earn my value through the approval of man or through the approval of God. The cross of Christmas shatters both of those. The cross of Christmas says, your life is not about you. It's all about the glory of God. And the cross of Christmas says, you don't have to earn anything in the courtroom. Jesus has done it for you. You get to live from approval, not for approval. And so I just wanna get this right. A gospel worldview this Christmas looks like, how do I get to the place where I'm thanking Jesus that I get the opportunity to live for the glory of God and that the peace of God has overcome me. So with whatever time I have left, I literally have two points. I hope this is helpful for you. I hope this gives you clear vision on Jesus, but I got two points to preach. I hope you'll tune in and then you can go eat ham. Sound good? All right, whatever you eat on Christmas. I don't even know what the traditions are. We ate Chinese food in my house. It was the one night all year long that we didn't eat Italian. Number one is this. Number one is this, straight from the passage. What does it mean to have a gospel worldview? Two things firmly put in place. Glory to God in the highest heaven. I want you to notice that glory to God is said first and then peace on earth. Why is that significant? Because if your entire view of the gospel message of Jesus is about God loving you, that is true, but it provides a weak foundation that will not be able to hold you through the storms of this life and through your own temptations to doubt. Pay very close attention. Y'all look up here, don't miss this. I in no way want to throw shade at any other preacher or any other church or claim that we're doing everything right here. We're not. We're figuring out a lot. We're seven years in, just now going, okay, this, oh, this is how we should do church. I mean, this is amazing. We're learning more and more every day. But one of the problems I have with a day like today is that I know for a fact that all over our country and really all over the world right now, when the gospel message of Jesus is proclaimed, there's a temptation to fast forward to the love of God and the favor of God on humanity that skips the glory of God that actually results in a self-centered gospel where you believe God exists primarily to love you. And you don't even really notice it. It's kind of like, it feels good for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whosoever believes in him will never die but have eternal life. And we want to fast forward to that. But it's also the reason why so many people are deconstructing from their faith right now. I think about this all the time with a church as young as ours is, that why are so many 20-year-olds, 23-year-olds, 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds deciding to walk away from their faith in Jesus? Could it be that their entire life, the gospel message they came to believe was a weak one because it was all about them? If you skip over the glory of God, it leads to a weak foundation because yes, God loves you, but if that's not foundationally put in place with the beam that says it's not about you, do you know why God loves you? Because he's that glorious. Because he's that merciful. Because he's that amazing. Do you know why this book exists? Do you know why your life exists? Same reason. To make God look awesome. The story is not about you and not about me. When the baby comes down and has all the attention on him, that's rightfully so because that's what all of eternity will be about. The glory of God is the reason why we exist. And that might sound mean. That might sound like, oh, you're throwing a buzzkill on Christmas. Like, we just want to have fun and enjoy the fact that God loves us. Okay, here's what I need you to know. There's going to come a time in your life where God loves you is not going to feel real. And it's when everything's going wrong. 
There are families in our church who really have lost people. Some of them were at the 2.30, and I just make an eye contact with them as I said this statement and going, it's not enough to pat them on the back and go, hey, I know you never planned on spending Christmas without your son, but God loves you. There has to be more. And the more is the glory of God gives you hope that when life makes zero sense and it feels like God's a billion miles away, there's a story going on with a deeper level of purpose that eternally speaking, the glory of God will weigh more than the suffering you're experiencing right now. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter four says, one of my favorite verses. I always like to point to this verse to a family that's suffering or grieving. It says, for our light and momentary troubles. Stop right there. When Paul says light and momentary troubles, he's not talking about a bad day or a backache. By the way, some of y'all do have back problems, and that is hard. Um, but he's not talking about like, oh, semi-bad day. He's talking about death. He's talking about affliction. He's talking about imprisonment. He's talking about persecution. He's calling the troubles he's been through light and momentary. Why? Because he's comparing it to this. Are achieving for us an eternal weight of what? Glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The absolute sovereignty of God over the mysteries of this broken world is this. If you are in Christ, one day the glory of God will weigh more than your suffering right now. That is a promise from God. And I don't know what that moment is going to be like. Actually, I don't think it's just going to be a moment. I think it's going to last forever. And that's what Paul's trying to get us to see. He's going, suffering now makes zero sense in the context of a temporal life. But when you look at the eternal story of what God is inviting us into, every ounce of suffering that a Christian experiences this side of heaven is producing something. It's not purposeless. It's not meaningless. It's producing a joy that will be enjoyed for all of eternity. So here's why the glory of God has to be the upward beam. If the glory of God is not foundational for what you believe as the reason why you exist and the reason why God exists, you will have no choice but to reconcile a God who disappoints you who's in your own image. When you look at the Bible, you see a God who's mysterious. You see a God who you can't understand everything about. But here's the most glorious thing about God in the scriptures. This is good news, y'all. Look up here, don't miss this. The most glorious thing about God in the Bible is how merciful he is and how kind he is how slow to anger he is. You know, when God said his name to Moses, he said his nature along with it. He said, the Lord, the Lord. What does that mean? Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh. Gracious and compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness, slow to anger, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The thing that makes God more glorious than any sunset, more glorious than any mountain range, and there's some breathtaking sights that you can see around the world, and he's got an all-striking presence that's super powerful, but the most glorious thing about God is his gentle, loving heart. And the thing that gives God the most glory in and through your life is knowing how big he is, how holy he is, how mighty he is, how all about him it is, and the fact that he would love sinful, desperate people like me and you. So how do, how do I make the glory of God the center of my life? By coming to understand that the story is not about you, and yet, despite you, he invites you in. And that causes a level of humility to go, my worldview exists, two beams, the glory of God, and number two, you can write this down, 
peace on earth to those whom his favor rests. I love this. When we say peace on earth, we're not just talking about a therapeutic massage in a Christmas moment. I know we put those words everywhere and they're in our songs, but when we say peace on earth, we're not talking about world peace like a beauty pageant. We're, we're talking about peace between sinful humanity and holy God the Father. Jesus is a peacemaker, and he's a peacemaker by his own blood and sacrifice. So why do we give gifts at Christmas? What? Why is this season seeming to be so disconnected from the true meaning? It's because God has sent down the greatest gift of all in his son to demonstrate for a world that would be separated from him forever, this is how loved you are. This is how wanted you are. This is how pursued you are. This is my heart of mercy on full display for you. And some of you tonight need to come to grips with the glory of God, but some of you tonight, even if you're a Christian, you need to come to grips with the fact that God favors you with a level of favor and love that you've been underestimating for too long. This has hit me like a ton of bricks the last couple of weeks. So I've got two little girls, another little girl on the way. One of them is about to turn five. The other just turned three. And I can tell you the majority of my life is brainstorming ways of communicating my love for them and falling short. Why? Because no matter what I do, I can't get the point fully across. Now, luckily, my oldest daughter, she's kind of like me. She's like super lovey-dovey, and we just stare at each other, and hey, you want to cuddle for the rest of our lives? And this is like, like, that's our relationship, and it's amazing. In fact, Courtney saw a video one time of me and Anderson. She's like, this is what it looks like to be in love. You and your oldest daughter, like we just make eyes at each other. It's the cutest thing. Me and my youngest daughter, current youngest daughter, will be the middle child. Not so much. Elliot is... Elliot's hilarious. I'll just, I'll just take you into a moment. I had a moment where Elliot and I were making direct eye contact, like nose to nose, and that's super rare because she's not as touchy-feely as Aniston is. And so I'm like, I'm enjoying this, and I look her deeply in the eyes, and I go, Elliot, I love you so much. This was like three weeks ago. I love you so much. She looks right back at me, and she goes, Daddy, I scratch you. Pulls the flesh off my face. <laughs> like literally two hands straight down. She thought it was hilarious. And I'm like, every part of me just wants to have a moment where I get to communicate my love. And that's how she is. But here's the beautiful thing. Here's the beautiful thing. A couple weeks ago, it's just real, real life. A couple weeks ago, it was her third birthday. And my wife caught this video of us bringing out a gift for her. I'd love to tell you that I made the bicycle that's being rolled in in this video when you watch it, but in reality, my wife, who once again, seven months pregnant, made it while I was writing a sermon for the people of God. And, uh, but I, I rolled it out, you know, like I made it. And I just, I love this picture. If you look, I want you to look so closely at her reaction. You can't tell when she sees it, but then the way she reacts ultimately when we roll this bike out and give her her birthday present will give you a glimpse into what I believe Christmas is all about. Watch this video. Okay, are you ready? Yeah, you ready for your last present? Wow. <gasps> <laughs> what is it? A bite. A bite. You love it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to try it on. ACC, look at me, don't miss this. I believe that God would love nothing more 
than for you to see Jesus this Christmas and just say, wow. That picture of her just being blown away with what's in front of her, and that's just a physical object that's gonna bring joy for a couple of days. The eternal reality of what we're talking about on Christmas is looking at God, bankrupting heaven. And here's what God wants. Here's what would make God more happy than anything is if you would behold the son of God born and just go, thank you. Thank you so much. And I actually believe the more you and I get an internal capacity to grasp the love of God, the more we grow spiritually. That's what Paul said in his famous prayer in Ephesians chapter three. You don't gotta turn there. I just wanna read it over you. He said, I pray out of God's glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is crazy. Paul says, my prayer for you is that you might create more space and have more power. Now the word power exists as a functionality in your life to do something. Why would you be given power for a task? What's the task of the Christian life? To grasp how high, wide, long, and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So some of you are here and you're like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, I know. Oh, you know intellectually, but do you know it in a way that consumes you and intoxicates you and takes over your inner being and overwhelms you to the degree that you go, Jesus, you're so much better than anything I can give my life to. And it's not even close. If you've been following Jesus for decades and it's been forever since you let the love of God overwhelm you, I got good news. Fullness, according to Paul, Fullness is when we grow our capacity to receive love. Some of you have been pursuing the fullness of God, and this is not a bad pursuit, but it will leave you ultimately empty if you miss the heart of God. You've been pursuing the fullness of God through theological study, and you're reading Puritans and Reformed doctrine, and you're reading stuff that was written thousands of years ago. It's beautiful. It grows your knowledge, but at the end of the day, If it doesn't grow your capacity to be loved by God and to love other people, it's hollow and empty. The deepest you can go spiritually is deeper into the love of God. And justification is not just a moment when you are saved. Please don't miss what I'm about to say. I promise I'm almost done. Justification is not just Jesus died to save you from your sins, pray the prayer to receive Christ, boom, you're going to heaven. Okay, now from here, we're gonna talk about spiritual growth. You need to read this stuff. You need to go on a mission trip. You need to preach the gospel to your friends and you need to, you need to replicate what God's doing in your life. And we make it like justification and being loved by God is one moment and the rest of your life is an effort. No, the whole journey is about creating capacity to be more loved by God. Why? So you can be a living sacrifice of love for the world around you. Let's go deeper into the love of God. And I, I don't even want to share what I'm about to say. Because the person the most guilty of viewing the love of God as a moment they were converted and not as a lifestyle is me. I love having things that God shows me that are just between me and God. And this was a couple weeks ago. There was a group of women in our church like really fighting and praying for God to reveal himself to me. And he did. And when I have a moment like this, I don't like sharing it from stage. Because 
so much of this can feel like a show and a performance for me. And I wanna have a relationship with God that's real when people are not watching. And so I'll have a moment like that and I'll be like, yeah, that's, that's just for me and him. That's not something I need to share publicly. But I felt like this week, God was like, there's other people who need to hear what was said in the secret place. So here it is. I'm alone with God. I'm reading the scriptures. Like I said, a couple weeks ago, scriptures are where the Holy Spirit illuminates the person of Jesus. And I suddenly notice that the doctrine of justification, that we've been made right with God has become a hollow and empty truth in my life that I just agree to, but it's not personal to me. I, I discovered by reading the most unlikely story that I have a noose around my neck and it's one word, approval. And this will shock you. It's not your approval, it's God's. And I was going, no way. Like, I, I don't care what people think. I'll just tell it like it is. I'll say whatever and go home to our amazing family and whatever. Like, I don't care what people think. God goes, no, no, you don't care what people think. But you've forgotten what I think. And it's the reason why, some of you need to hear this. Holy Spirit communicated this as clear as anything he's ever communicated to me. He said, it's the reason why when you sin, you're scared. And it's the reason why when you preach, you perform. Not for them, but for me. As if something you do on this stage has any bearing on what I think about you. And I know I'm probably the only preacher in this room, but your life has a microphone too. And all of us have a tendency of trying to re-earn the approval of God that was given to us once for all in Jesus. And God wants to go, hey, that wasn't just for a moment that you were saved. I approve of you as a husband. I approve of you as a mom. I approve of you as a daughter. I approve of you in every area of life that you walk into this week. And what if we let the approval of God become more than one moment, but this overwhelming sense of belonging where God goes, you exist for my glory. How do I glorify God? By being satisfied in his love for you. Glory to God, peace on earth, the cross of Christmas. Here's what I wanna do. I want us collectively to be intoxicated with the love of God. You got communion elements on the way in. If you can go ahead and get those out right now, we're gonna make sure we remember. If you didn't get them, you can just softly, like not softly, because I don't know how you softly raise your hand, but just quietly raise your hand and our team will stand up and bring them to you. If you are not a believer in Jesus, this moment is for you to just leave that under your chair and think about what God means to you and maybe what's being communicated to you right now. But it's got a little piece of bread and a shot of juice that honestly is just, it falls short of the full meaning of communion, but it's what we got tonight. Here's the goal. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, he held up the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. He held up the wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why did Jesus do that? Look up here. Because he knew we would forget. This Christmas, this is your opportunity to receive the gift and to remember the reason why you exist, the reason why you have breath. Husbands, if you wanna take this opportunity to pray over your wives and your families, I think that's great because Christmas has a way of drowning out the moments that matter most. I think this moment could be really powerful. But you make this moment whatever you wanna make it as you remember the sacrifice of Jesus and let's let the cross of Christmas illuminate Jesus one more time. Y'all do this on your own time. The band's gonna come up here and we'll sing in just one minute.